Warning, this episode contains extreme fanboying. Judgment Day Refreshment Committee. I am your host as ever, sexy, sexy Dory Peacock. With me today is my sexy assistant, and you'll never find a thirstier mom, yo, which is an anagram for Timothy Maurice. Doriam, I'm going to make a career change. Again? Again. Did macrame not work out? It did not. This time I am going to transition into astrology for dogs. Astrology for dogs. So you can find out if your dog is like a Libra or whatever? Yeah, you can find your dog's perfect love match. Oh. Match the right dog to the right chew toy. <laughs> or match your dog to you. Like, maybe if you're an Aries, you shouldn't have a Gemini dog. Really? Really, people? <laughs> this is serious business. And to help us with the committee business this day, we couldn't get two Lenas. We just have Elena. It's our friend Elena, whose last name Tim will say. Rogers. Yeah. I always forget to ask people their last names before the podcast starts, and then it's bad. Also, our other friend, who is also Elena's boyfriend and a swell guy wearing heart-shaped sunglasses. I didn't make that up. Pictures on Instagram later to prove it. Uh, he is nominally obligated to oppose Palestine because his name is Israel. Lawton. Lawton! Good with the name save, Tim. And today, we are talking about... Uh, you know, once I say the title, it will, also, it will still sound like we're talking about Palestine. A series of unfortunate events. You know what? I didn't... Oh. Tim was opposed to the Palestine joke until this very moment. Now you're just doubling down. No, I really am. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so the series of unfortunate events, the, what would you call it, seminal series from the early 2000s, late 90s by Lemony Snicket, the mysterious author. Yeah. I think I would definitely call it the best young adult series of the early 2000s. Oh. From a literary Even standpoint. Harry Potter? No, 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 no question. Amazingly no question. better so than sorry. Harry Potter. Yeah. So better I know that we're probably Potter? talking to Harry Potter fans right now, but Lemony Snicket fans will agree that okay. there's nothing I, like the, 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 I'm going to have to fight you on biggest, that later. The biggest thing for me, though, that differentiates a series of unfortunate events, not only from Harry Potter, but from other children's literature, is that it deals with moral ambiguity. Yeah. Like, Harry Potter uh -huh. is very, like, good versus evil. It's very, like, didactic and moralistic. But a series of unfortunate events was never didactic. And that's the thing that I liked about it the most as a child and that I like the most about it now is that... It always respected its audience, even knowing that they were children, and it was never afraid to tackle issues of, like, ambiguous quality. Like, what is the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I have, oh, I have mixed feelings about that, because I think it's, it's funny, because you're right, it's not didactic. It doesn't... That was an excerpt from a better co podcast called The Polka Hour, um, we're back to this one now. Okay, so... <laughs> what? <laughs> I like that it doesn't talk down to children. However, there's like a thing where all the evil people are very obviously mustache-twirlingly evil, and all the good people are pretty good. And it does get more complicated as it goes, and I like that, but mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I agree that the first half of the series is like... Well, I, I, I think that's almost the point of a series of unfortunate events. Like, the first half of the series is ludicrously formulaic. Like, mm -hmm. you know after you read the second book, like, what the plot of 
every other book from then on is going to be. Yeah, it's yeah. the boxcar children. Exactly. Like, you know that <laughs> Count Olaf is, is, is going to... It's the sad boxcar children. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that Count Olaf is going to show up in disguise, and he's going to come up with a plan to try to get their fortune. Everything and shifts when, like, they discover VFD, and mm. then the, mm-hmm. like, gray areas come in. I, I think that, like... I think you kind of have to pace it that way. Like, I think you have to ease people in with something they're comfortable and familiar with and then spring that ambiguity on them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Relena, would you summarize uh, summarize these books to us, the basic plot? The premise, if you will. Yes. Uh, so the Baudelaire orphans are uh, three children who have enormously wealthy parents who perished in a horrible fire. Uh, they are Violet, Klaus, and Sonny. Violet is 14, Klaus is 12, Sonny is a baby. And Mr. Poe, who becomes their legal guardian, who is a banker and a friend of their parents, uh, takes over their affairs and handling where they go. Uh, so he sends them to live with a very distant relative named Count Olaf, who is a very greedy and evil man and who is constantly conspiring to steal their fortune at every turn. So then the main conflict uh, throughout the series is that Count Olaf desperately wants their fortune and will get it at any means necessary. And the Baudelaire orphans just don't want to be abused. <laughs> Pretty much. That's yeah. a good synopsis. So... This is a series that I came across as a kid, but I only read it as an adult. How did you guys encounter it? Oh, um, I definitely... Three words. Three words. Uh, Scholastic Book Fair! (laughs) Scholastic Book Fair. I I got them in the mail, actually. Um, They came to my house by accident. My parents didn't order them. Nobody ordered them. But when I was like five years old, the first three books came in the mail to our house by accident. So I read them anyways. Did you you steal another child's books on accident? Probably. I I mean, that's like the most poetic way to get into a series of unfortunate events. I don't know. Right? A mysterious package that shows up. (laughs) Oh, also, sorry, listeners. We're going to... We're going to spoil this thing. We're going to fangirl out, and we're going to spoil this thing. So if you were, like, waiting all these years to read the books, tough tits for you. Go listen to our Twilight episode. It's great. (laughs) Or our sad episode from last week. So, yeah. Israel, what about you? Where did you come across them? Um, I was always a very literate kid, and... I feel um, like you should give some background also about your, your... Moving status as a kid. Yeah, okay. So I moved all the time for a series of unfortunate reasons. <laughs> and uh, But at the time I was living in Maine and my mom just checked out, would just check out books for me from the library. I'd check out books for myself. But my mom as an adult could really pick like really erudite children's literature. And she stumbled across in like 2000 or 2001 uh, when we were living in Maine, The Bad Beginning, the first series book. And um, she brought it home, and when she read it to me, there was no book that any adult or anyone had ever written that was exposed to me that was uh, talking to me like I was a human, not like I was a child, that was really talking about words and literature and motifs. And the book really disturbed me, but it made me laugh. And I'd never seen anything that disturbed me and made me laugh. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never read anything like that. And I was hooked from the very beginning. And for like the next three years of my life, there was a lot of crazy stuff that was happening in my life, but Series of Unfortunate Events was kind of the uh, the constant that I that I clung to. That's great, uh, Tim. What about you? 
Was it really the Scholastic Book Fair? I think it might have been. I, I have vague memories of how I ran into these books. It would have been a combination of Scholastic Book Fair, uh, school libraries, and um, uh, I think I might have had a teacher, at least one teacher, read it in class in one of my elementary school classes, potentially, which is amazing when you consider the content of these books. I, I have, we have with us actually all of the series that I own. The books are sitting strewn about. They are. Um, and I think I remember buying these. I remember very fondly getting to go to the store and waiting for the next one to come out and checking on the internet. I mean, this was, this was back in the age where if you wanted to read books, you had to wait for them. And it, it, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Um, uh, yeah, I was, so I was a kid. I was in about junior high and I had a friend that was obsessed with these books and he would buy every one of them. He'd wait for the new one to come out. We lived in the middle of nowhere, so there were no bookstores to go to. And so he would just pre-order everything on Amazon. Amazon was new. (laughs) And he would bring them to school and then he would show the funniest parts to me. Mm -hmm. And I was like a weird Monty Python kid. (laughs) My dad let me watch Holy Grail when he definitely should not have. (laughs) And so I always loved, like, the weird, dry British humor. And so Tanner would be like, oh, 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 come read this, come read this. And I didn't get around to actually reading them until I listened to them at work as an adult. And by then I found some of the, like, like, he does these cute explanations of what words mean. And by the time I was an adult, I found that kind of pedantic. Mm -hmm. But I did, like... uh, I I did like the colorful ways he found to, to weave that in instead of it just being, like, I don't know. An explanation, yeah. I do have to say, though, that, like, reading those as a child and, like, really not knowing what those words meant, it it felt so much like I was always learning. Like, I I feel Mm. like the biggest thing for me is that I learned a lot from these books. And he just really digs into, like, the connotations of the Mm -hmm. words. Like, I feel like with some of these words, I got better explanations of them through reading these books than I did through school or through my own teacher's explanations of them. Yeah, I feel like it's really hard to do these justice with just a summary because really Mm -hmm. there's so much more than just the premise. These are the first and maybe the only young adult and children's literature that is distinctly has a form of stylism Mm -hmm. to it. Uh, And part of what makes these books so fun, if you've never read them is that they are a satire. Mm -hmm. They are, (laughs) they are, they are, they're they're full of dark, weird, dry humor. That is, it's, it's Douglas Adams esque. And you, Dory, you were describing this on the way that is baby's first Douglas Adams. And that's absolutely true. Hitchhiker's guide for babies. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and and like like for example, the very first book opens. I'm going to read the the first page of the first book. Don't sue don't sue us, Daniel Handler. If, if you're interested in stories with happy endings, you better you would be better off reading some other book. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning, and very few happy things in the middle. This is because not very many things happened in the lives of the three Baudelaire youngsters, Violet, Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire were intelligent children and they were charming and resourceful and had plenty of facial features, but they were extremely unlucky and most everything that happened to them was rife with misfortune, misery and despair. I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's how the story goes. Pleasant, yeah. pleasant facial so, like, features. This is a book that trusts its readers enough to know of it, which as a children, it, child, it's mind blowing. 
that a book would tell you not to read it. Oh, exactly. And every one of these exactly. books starts that way. Exactly. I, I laughed for like two days about one of the for one of the books. The introduction is like, go read this book called The Happiest Elf. Yes. And I laughed for like three days about oh, that. I think that's for the miserable mill. I think it is for the miserable mill. Yeah. It, he has this whole screed about a different book that is a fake book he made up called The Happiest Elf. And then when they made the movie with Jim Carrey. Yes, that's, that's how it opens. The title card yes. is a, a title card for The Happiest Self. And I busted up laughing and my parents hadn't seen this and so they were like, what? I mean, what is it? Um, if I was going to comment on what Tim read, uh, something that Elaine and I talk about all the time is that these were, speaking of like literature for children that was for children that were into literature, which really wasn't happening. Um, the references and the names of the characters in this book <laughs> in these series of books, was amazing. There was nothing like it. And it was designed to age with children our age mm. that grew up and never gave up a love of literature, never gave up on the literature quest. Like, you have Mr. Poe, the banker caretaker, obviously, Edgar Allan Poe. But, and there's plenty, and the Baudelaire's obviously reference to Charles Baudelaire, lots of gothic references uh, that was completely unheard of. Uh, and who's Charles Baudelaire again? Charles Baudelaire is a French poet from the 19th century, uh, maybe my favorite poet of all time. Oh. Uh, and he wrote a lot of just quintessentially gothic 19th century poetry. Gotcha. Um, I feel like at this point I want to step in for the, the children at home. So you two are both uh, kind of gothy, mm-hmm. kind of gothy kids. Will you explain the difference between uh, being in gothy kids and what in this context gothic means oh okay so like gothic like in yeah this what is context, what is what is gothic literature yeah it's okay so versus cool, being cool. a gothy can i talk a gothy kid um yeah i feel the historical um, context so, welling up in my brain <laughs> go, when, go for it alana <laughs> when we're referring to gothic literature we're talking about stuff like we're talking about your emily bronte we're talking about stuff like wuthering heights we're talking mm. about stuff like frankenstein like dracula you, yeah we, we're uh, talking dracula the we're thinking like okay uh-huh, you want to think like a hundred and like 50 years ago like like really like languid like <laughs> like pretty like landscapes with like spooky puritanical stuff happening in them like you want to think of like god-fearing people in like pretty green pastures is like gothic literature yeah and i'll let israel explain what being a gothy kid is yeah, I'll talk about two different things uh, that are relevant to series. So, goth is just the uh, pop culture manifestation. Uh, yeah, manifestation of those ideas. I think, and if we're going to talk about series of unfortunate events, which I think is what I'm here to do, um, you have the idea of the gothic villain, which is a villain who. Uh, so, let's talk about Phantom of the Opera for a second. Okay. Um, the novel Phantom of the Opera by Gaston hey, Leroux. Hang on, though, because that's like later, though. Phantom of the Opera was in the 40s, wasn't it? No, no, no. The novel Phantom of the Opera came out in the late. Uh, 19th century. He's right. Oh, okay. I thought the I thought the novel was later. No, no, no. The novel is a late 19th century French novel. Prime and the late 19th century is prime European Gothic lit mm. stuff. Um, and the idea and what why I'm bringing up Phantom of the Opera is that Phantom of the Opera is the novel ends with Gaston Leroux, the narrator, who insists that the story is true and insists that he's researched it, which is very gothic. Um, saying. Yeah, this guy was like a serial killer and he was weird, but he was a really good musician, so who's to say if he was a bad guy? And that's like very, that's very gothic is that, uh, yeah, you might be like a serial killer or a creepy uncle trying to like do crazy stuff, but uh, if you're good at something beautiful, something romantic, you're not gonna, 
uh, you can't really be faulted because all the world is shit. So why would you ever, you know, why would art be the bad thing that you were good at? And series of unfortunate events has this idea of like gothicism of like these people are bad, but there's something beautiful about them. There's something glamorous about them. And I think that's what the goth subculture is about too. I, and um, I'd say beyond just also that as well, an element to the series of unfortunate events, which is also common in a lot of gothic um, stuff is it's the sense of the languidness is surrounded by an austerity of setting yeah. that, mm-hmm. that all of these books have very vivid and, and uh, hyperbolic uh <laughs> settings to them and they're they're kind of encapsulated in the titles i oh, mean yeah there's there's the reptile room which is an arboreum full of reptiles there's the wide window which is a house on a a house uh on stilts, on stilts uh stuck over a cliff over a lake with a wide window in the back where you can see a hurricane approaching there is the miserable mill which is a giant lumber mill full of sad depressed workers there is the the airsats elevator which is an elevator in a giant penthouse you know, they all, there, there's a real sense in these books of of setting in addition to everything else. And Lemony Snicket, uh, or Daniel Hatfield as his actual name is Handler. called. Handler. Handler. Whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. Um, he calls on a lot of very Americana, like turn of the, mm-hmm. turn of the, like almost adventure stories sometimes. Oh, yeah. Turn yeah, of the century, yeah, I think, like. Oh, well, I, I think. Um, stuff. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think, like, makes this most tellingly, like gothic per se just technically is that uh so with a lot of gothic fiction um the the whole like framing device that is used for it is oh well i found this collection of letters or this story was related to me but i don't know it directly and that's what lemony snicket does by like inserting himself as a character in it it's like classically gothic like like cliche gothic that's how frankenstein is exactly yeah Yeah. Yeah. frankenstein is a great example yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. Dracula is probably the the most beautiful example. Um, and I could say a lot of things about and like Dracula. Weathering Heights as well. Like 100%. All of these I mean, things like use this framing technique. And I think that a part of that is um, they use this framing technique to pull the reader into this world of whimsy, right? Like Frankenstein, like what he's talking about is unprecedented, Victor Frankenstein with his creation. But like you can buy it if it's somebody telling you a secondhand story or an urban legend and so of someone telling you I saw this with my own eyes mm-hmm. so like Lemony Snicket is able to create all of these whimsical landscapes because he's telling you a story yeah I don't know I see this is cool it has a lot of gothic elements but I think like if if, if I'm if I'm to get very intellectual and I am because it's this podcast um <laughs> I would say it has more in common like I don't know if they're I have okay I don't know if there is surrealist literature because I haven't really read any but I think these books have more in common with surrealism as a movement than with than with gothic literature. I I disagree. Um, but I I, well, I, me, I think let, I wait, understand what it. you mean because the, the it's anachronistic. Like there's no set time that it takes that's, place in. That's what and I, I mean. I think that's like, very jarring. There's no there's no specific time. The places are all invented. Mm-hmm. The way things are described, everything looks a little Victorian, but yeah. they have modern technology. Yeah, exactly. And, and also it's a world that doesn't resemble our world, but everything that exists in our world also exists there, mm-hmm. which is what I think makes it like kind of surrealist. But that's perfect for the kinds of things he talks about. It 
it honestly is what would happen well, if Monty Python got a hold of gothic literature. I think it's literature. to uh, postmodernism than it is to surrealism because mm-hmm. I feel like um, the things that are jarring about that and the things that make that kind of dissonant from our modern perspective is just that. Like, I feel like it's kind of a commentary and like a satire on like gothic and Victorian literature as much as it is a celebration of it. That's well, true. wait, I got I to gotta say a couple of things. First of all, uh, there is definitely surrealist literature because surrealist literature originally was a literary movement uh, until like the 30s, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was no surrealist art that was not literature. It was considered to be uh, uh, only and exclusively a poetic movement. But, oh, gotcha. Like William Blake's illustrated poems. And stuff. Uh, well, gotcha. I'm talking like Audrey Breton, yeah. but sure. Um, Wasn't, didn't it start, didn't surrealism as an, uh, at least a film movement didn't really start until Jean Cocteau, right? No, no, no. Until you're until thinking about film. until Dalé <laughs> and, okay. uh, Oh yeah. And what do you call him? You know, who directed Exterminating Angel? What is his name? Oh, Bunuel. Bunuel. Yeah. Th- when they collaborated, that was when visual art became part of the surrealist landscape. Before that, it was entirely a poetic and literature movement. Gotcha. The reason I think that series of unfortunate events is more gothic than it is surreal. Okay, so uh, have you read Jane Eyre? Is that a novel that ever interviewed? I have read the first half of Jane Eyre, okay, perfect. and then well, I, I want was, to stab my own eyes I was going to reference the first half of Jane Eyre. So I think what Susan and Fortune events, if we're going to talk about something like surrealism in literature, it's more like magical realism. Mm-hmm. And I always thought the gothic literature was more like magical realism than it was anything else because they're like, this is a true story. This happened to real people. Uh, but here's like what could be broadly described as a cult or supernatural events that happened to real people. But you can't pin down whether it's the troubled state of the characters' minds that made them surreal or whether the surreal events happened that caused the, the narrators to have troubled minds. See, and, I, and Jane Eyre's very that way. I feel like it's like very postmodern. Like, oh, it's yeah. That, like, it's very unreliable narrator the yeah. entire way. And like, it's very like, like Tim said at like the very beginning of this, like it is a satire, like through and through. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, what are we satirizing? Um, we're satirizing uh culture we're satirizing the uh, normal society literary I, culture this is academia. This, well and for kids especially so this is a story effectively about three lisa simpsons it's true uh, <laughs> and and what's kind of interesting about this story is the adults are largely either incompetent or untrustworthy mm-hmm. or uh will, Dead. or even if they are competent will usually fail you and die so what is, I think, really novel about this series overall is that it presents this idea of kids, don't trust society. Yeah. It's not going to help you oh, fight to live. Which I think is so, so valuable to hear as a child. Like, as a child, it meant so much to me to have, like, this series of books that were like, no, like, and you know, like, when something bad is happening to you, like, you you should take that into your own hands. Like, and, and in every book... The children each have to use their unique talents to, at some point, turn the plot in their favor. Mm -hmm. Either Violet, who is an inventor, who needs to invent something with very limited materials on hand. Klaus, who is an avid reader, who has to either do a piece of research, which involves a piece of very esoteric knowledge that will turn the tide of things. Or Sunny, who is a baby with sharp teeth, who will use her teeth to bite something in her favor. And that's the humor of it. That's like the, that's the so beauty funny. and the absurdity Every, of it. That's one of the, the formula pieces of the book. Every book involves Violet always inventing something, Klaus always reading something, or Sunny always although, biting something. Although, Except the miserable mill where they switch it up and uh, Klaus has to invent something and Violet so has to fun. read something. And so Although fun. as the series turns, um, as the series like takes that turn from like being very formulaic to playing 
more with moral ambiguity, Sunny discovers that she's really good at cooking. So she like she she mm-hmm. the the biting habit that she has becomes this more like fully formed part of her character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you are an intellectual or maybe weird and aberrant in some way, like have two pairs of giant sharp teeth, and you have an absurd ability to to speak despite only being able to make baby sounds. Uh, this book enfranchises you and that it puts you in on the joke, but it also reassures you that your sense of distrust for the society and adults around you and that they are largely incompetent and, and will not be able to help you is maybe a little bit correct. I, I'm sitting here like meditating because we keep comparing this to like Hitchhiker's Guide and I would kind of compare that style of humor to Monty Python if Daniel Handler is like, oh, I'm a huge Monty Python fan. I'll be like, yeah, no shit, dude. But the thing about Hitchhiker's Guide is that like Hitchhiker's Guide is just full nihilism, like 100% everyone's going to die, so who cares? And the series ends, spoiler alert, with everybody dying and nobody cares. And I feel like... Daniel Handler is being pulled that way with these books. Like he kind of, he does the, the moral ambiguity thing is really cool because he does a few things where like at a certain point, the children start using similar tactics to count Olaf Mm. to turn things in their favor. And they're like, wait, we thought that using disguises was what made him bad. Are we bad if we do that Mm -hmm. too? And they start asking like, what makes somebody noble and what makes somebody villainous? And is anybody totally villainous or totally noble? And I think where it kind of lands, it's never super clear, but where it kind of lands is like, everybody's kind of a mix of good and bad and you just do the best you can. Yeah. And some days, like one of my favorite lines is, you're noble enough. Like, mm-hmm. you're never going to get it right 100% of the time, but you're good enough. Just try it. And I think it's like... I don't know. I, it, it seems it, like that aspect of it seems incomplete to me because I really want him to nail it down and be like, here's what I'm trying to say with these books. And he doesn't really. But that's what I, I, I think that that at the end but of you, the day is just like a difference. Full, I yeah. think it's, it's a difference in taste at the well, end of the day. And is, you can't I go think full like, nihilism for babies. And so he, I think he goes as far as he can to the edge. I don't I, know. I kind of disagree. Like, I think that, like, the point is that there is, like, I think it's less nihilistic and more absurdist in its message. Like, I yeah. think it's, like, absurdism for children. It's like, well, we don't really know anything. That kind of sucks, you know? But, like, no one else knows anything either, you know? Well, like, yeah. we all know as little it's, as everybody else, so just kind of do what you can. Well, and it's presenting a... a, a kind of noirish, uh, noir, like detective noir kind of sensibility to it where mm-hmm. it loves that. Amb- it has that ambiguous ending because I think part of the joy of the book is that it's filled with all this, these little obscure elements to it. There's, so one of the elements of this, this book series is that the Baudelaire's find out that their parents and at one point count Olaf and one prior point who was not evil at that time, uh, were involved in a secret organization called the VFD and they never really explain. They kind of explain what the VFD is, but they never really give a full but satisfying explanation of what it it's is. It's very fancy doilies. The seventh book. It, Shut it, up, it's, no, it's not. <laughs> um, but like what their like what their job is. Like yeah. they're they're clearly spies, but they don't work for the government. They don't work for anything. They're just like they're kind of like a benevolent Illuminati, I guess. Uh, yeah, but that's what I really like about it. Like I I like that that's left so ambiguous and open ended because I. Kind 
kind of feel like that's what the world feels like to you when you're a kid. Like, I feel like as a kid, you know that, like, adults have jobs and, like, they do important things and, like, they're working for, like, particular reasons, but you don't have a good enough understanding of it. And the Baudelaire's talk about this, like, as they're discovering that their parents were part of their this organization and they're like, well, we always wanted to believe that our parents were good people, but we don't understand what this is. Yeah. Like, it's bigger than that. I kind of wonder, like, I kind of think we sit here picking it apart and making comparisons to Dracula, and I kind of wonder if Daniel Handler's just like, shit, dude, I don't know. It was fun and it was fun and zany. But, but I mean, <laughs> there's so many literary references throughout it that I find it hard to believe that he wasn't doing it deliberately. Oh, like, no, no. I think, I think he was referencing things deliberately. I just kind of wonder if, like... There's, like, a whole generation of people who have found so much meaning in this. And maybe for him it was just, like, I'm going to write a crazy adventure story out of time and place. Well, I think when you're a literature person, someone that's dedicated their whole life to literature, I'm, I'm essentially unpublished, but literature is the only thing that keeps me alive. And I think when you write literature and you hear writers talk about literature, the whole point of literature is that there is no answer. Uh, like yeah. whether, you know, and so I think that Lemony Snicket was like piecing together this elaborate mosaic of literary references and motifs and ideas and humor. Uh, but why would there have to be some kind of final statement mm-hmm. that's like counterintuitive to, I think what most people get out of literature and Snicket or Handler understands that. And I think like, especially like, I, I, I think that Snicket is like hammering home more than anything, like the inherent beauty of literature itself. Yeah. Like it's oh, like okay. Roland Barthes. It's like the pleasure mm-hmm. of the text. It's like you read for the pleasure of reading itself. And that's enough, even though everything that's going around you might be like awful. Like, and literature can save you if you're a kid and bad things are happening. Exactly. To you. Oh, literature totally. is a beautiful means of escapism. And like throughout the series, the Baudelaire orphans are reading books like, constantly as a means of escapism and like as a kid I used a series of unfortunate events as a means of escapism as I think like many people turn to art for escapism like yeah and and, you know I don't know I I always want I always want my questions answered and it scratches a weird part of my brain that is more a historian than anything and I'm like no there someone has to have written something but. I've never taken a class from Lance Olson, but I'm going to give a shout out to Lance Olson, even though I've never read any of his books. I've never taken a class from him, but he's a U of U professor who's kind of a literary celebrity among people in the know. And uh, I had a friend who took a class from him, and he said that all writing uh, was just asking questions. And as soon as you've answered a question, uh, you've fucked up as a writer. Hmm. Uh, and I think that the more that you write, the more you're like, oh man, I have no idea. I don't know what's good. I don't know if I'm a good writer. I don't know if my favorite writers are good writers. I hate this. Oh, like, the thing is, like, that's the thing. That's the beauty of it. Like, that's the work of it is yeah. that you just have to love the work itself enough. You just have to love the form enough. And I think that a series of unfortunate events does nothing better than still just a general love of literature. That's true. Like, I think, I, I don't know. And I think maybe... For a book when you're a kid, it's enough to just raise questions to get you talking about oh, stuff. With, absolutely. With the people in your life that you trust to talk about that stuff. Absolutely. With. And I think that there's a comfort of being a kid and being overcome with questions that as a child feel unanswerable. And then you're talked to like adults about it and the adults are kind of give you these unanswerable and answers. Like, Shit, we, dude, we don't know. <laughs> and then and then you read a book where all the kids are asking these questions and you're like, okay. And what literature says is we're all asking these questions and no one has the answer. And that has to be the mm. the height of comfort. Yeah, it it's validates so, it's you so as funny a person. Though, like, like, it's so funny though, because I remember one of the books 
the the answer to a riddle they have to solve to open a thing is what's the theme of of uh, I think it's Anna Karenina <laughs> or is it Madame Bovary? It's, I think it's, it's Madame Bovary. Madame Bovary. It's Madame Bovary. Yeah, Madame Bovary. And they're like, and he states word for word the exact thing that someone else at VFD got out of Madame Bovary. And so it's so funny because like the the book itself kind of belies what you're saying. Well, I think that's part of like, okay, so Israel, I I think we'll talk more about this at length after I mention this, but like, so there's this book called The Savage Detectives, and I think it's the perfect metaphor for exactly this thing where like, you're constantly searching for answers and every now and again through literature or film or any art or medium, you'll find an answer to like, one of these questions, but it always unlocks more questions. And Uh that's what the Baudelaire's find throughout their journey is that for every question that they have answered, so many other arise. It's like a hydra that they can't kill. Mm -hmm. So like you discover just enough or you figure out just enough or solve just enough to get to the next piece of the puzzle, but it's never solved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just got to, because The Savage Detectives is probably my favorite book I've read in the last five years. And anyone that's been friends with me for even like 10 or 15 minutes has heard me babble about The Savage Detectives. Uh, my life literally was changed by that novel. And um, yeah, it's exactly what Elena says, where it's just the idea. There's a lot. I mean, The Savage Detectives is a almost 700 page novel that says a lot of different things. But it's a uh, principal motif as the way that I interpret it are the people that are tracking down scraps of paper, just desperately hounding after book, after book, after book. They're kind of trying to find why they're tracking down book after book after book. And everything like loops back around because the more books they find, the the more they're like, oh, well, in order to get this book, I have to read like 10 or 12 other books. Mm -hmm. uh, And I have to keep like trying to find. And the central plot point of the Savage Detectives is that they're trying to find this, this poet. Uh, And no one really knows anything about her, but they know that she's really important. And it's kind of like, only vaguely hinted about why she's important. I don't want to spoil the book, but they're looking for this poet. And I think that that's totally the Baudelaire's is like, okay, so you just got to read all of these books and you read all these books like, okay, so this one question was answered, but about halfway through reading all these books to answer this question, I realized that that wasn't really the question. Mm -hmm. And I have to read another dozen books in order to figure out why I was even asking that question. And if it was Douglas Adams, the answer would be a guy living in a shack on the edge of a lake, <laughs> putting a piece of paper and a pen together. <laughs> yeah, so neglected so far as that these have some of the greatest like physical copy books that you would ever own as a child. Mm. I, have, I have most of these books in hardback. Um, and by most of them, I mean I have, all the ones I have are in hardback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just been missing three of them. They have gorgeous illustrations by, uh, what's his name? Brett Helquist. Brett Helquist, um, that add to the Victorian Gothic tone. Um, they are also one, okay, so there's this one detail that I love about these books, which I think says a lot about them. If you actually look at the way the books are bound, the paging is all uneven. Mm-hmm. Like all, like normally when you buy a book, all the pages are the same length. All the pages are a different length, so it kind of has this sense of, like you're reading it's something old fashioned old, to yeah. it. It feels it feels kind of put together in a strange way. And such were the deep amount of questions and secret societies in this book series that they actually published a book of Apocrypha called An Unauthorized Biography of Lemony Snicket, which there is one of my favorite the unauthorized things. Unauthorized autobiography. Oh, unauthorized autobiography. Bec- unauthorized autobiography. So fun. Uh, <laughs> and it's just full of like 
every and the book is supposed to answer questions like what is VFD and what is going on in this and it's just a bunch of like more confusing his rambling about like all this other stuff. <laughs> it's great. Uh, okay, so I want to spend the last couple minutes talking about our hot takes about the TV show. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, so I I I think the TV show I don't like it as much as the movie. I'm going to say that right off the bat. Oh, really? And the movie isn't even very good. Um, Neil Patrick Harris has so much fun and is excellent as Count Olaf. Really? I think aside from that, the rest of the show is really poorly cast, and I think especially really? the child actors are dreadful. I can't believe I'm married to this beautiful woman because the TV. You're not married. You're gonna have to bleep this because uh, that movie is fucking awful. Like I think <laughs> no, well, that movie really is movie? awful. But Meryl Streep as Aunt Josephine is great, and who they chose to play Aunt Josephine in uh, this series was not great. They they chose Joan Cusack as Justice Strauss, which oh, was I just liked her. weird. Just oh, I liked weird. Her a lot. I love Joan Cusack as an actress. I yeah, think she too. was horribly miscast for that role. Oh man, I see, I, I Tim is gonna fight you because he hates. I hate Neil Patrick Harris casting. He's perfect. I think he's doing his best, and there's sometimes I really, really like him. But honestly, no, but Neil, Neil Patrick, Patrick Harris, Harris. Neil Patrick Harris is like if Peter Pan was allowed to actually grow up. He no, would but, look and sound like Neil Patrick but Harris. Neil Patrick Harris, I think, co-produced the show, and I think he gets everything that's like great about like playing the part of Count Olaf. Like he, he has kind so of, much. Fun. He kind of falls into though Count Olaf is like. A greedy, tired old queen, a little bit. That's what Count Olaf is, though, and that's what I always like about. That's exactly. what I like about NPH's Count Olaf because in the books, Count Olaf is kind of more shallow and exactly materialistic than yeah. anybody else, and, except and, for Esme. Except for oh, Esme, and except the, for the Esme. Women, which is what makes them perfect. And I think that the the casting of Esme in oh, the TV show is perfect. So perfect. I love, I love her so much. I I don't like Neil Patrick Harris's shtick. I and yeah. that's my problem is that I this this version of Count Olaf has a lot of shtick. In the books, Count Olaf is much more this towering kind of menacing figure who's just perfectly smarmy. And in the in the in the show, which is for children, I think in a way more produced way, a lot of those edges are sanded off, and he's a lot more buffoonish. Well, I think that the which show- I think is a detriment to the show. Admittedly. This gets less bad for me after the first two episodes I, when he's got less time to be buffoonish and he's doing more just conniving. Oh, I, I think Jim Carrey's way more buffoonish. Oh, yeah, I agree, actually. And I think, look, I, I agree that there's a lot of overproduction going on with the show, but I don't think that's the part. that That's not the fault of Neil Patrick Harris. Okay, uh, here's, here's my thing. Here's my hot takes about the show. Uh, I really like the design. Oh, if I... They, you hate it? I know. I the, the design yeah. of the old movie was the design of the old movie was cool because they went Victorian, and since yeah. they couldn't do that with this, they went kind of mid-century, forties yeah. through sixties, which which I which I think is really pretty. Anyway, I love Patrick Warburton as Lemony Snicket. That's a great choice. It's in a my choice opinion. I wouldn't have made, but it worked out so good. I like a lot more stuff in the second season, like the woman that plays Esme is my mm-hmm. favorite. I really love Nathan Fillion as Jacques Snicket. Oh, he's just, great. Yeah. Just because Nathan Fillion is always the guy who shows up and is handsome and good at things. What are you, my mom? No, no, no. This is like a this is no, like a joke. Like right. Thrilling Adventure Hour did a similar thing oh, with him. Oh, for sure, yeah. Where he would every time he came on, he was the best at everything. Exactly. He was, yeah, he's yeah. just like handsome and good at doing stuff. What, like, yeah. Are you my mom too? <gasps> I, I like that yes, about Jim. it. I also think I'm glad it's it's being serialized because the movie suffered a lot for mm-hmm. having to cram a lot in. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, definitely. No like 
I I agree completely that uh, serialization is a hundred percent the correct format for this. Like, it's thirteen books, folks. It's thirteen books. That's too much for a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I also like this this choice where. In the series, you get to see some of the stuff BFD is doing as the children are having their adventure. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was not super I on board with that. Hate it. But they've I done some fun things with it. I think it's such a lazy framing device. I hate how it's I, revealed. I like it for. I like the first season when they do the thing. I, I won't tell you what it is, but they do the thing with Will Arnett and Kobe Smulders. And I like the second season that we get to see the behind the scenes stuff because then we care when Jacques Snicket dies. And in the book, it's just kind of like, you know, that guy, you know, that guy that died, he was my brother. Yeah. But I, I kind of like that, like, as the books go on, like, I, I I kind of like this retroactive, like, uh, viewing of things as significant because I feel like that's how the books age for people. But books reveal information differently than television shows have to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's part of a television show is television shows, since they're temporally locked, you if, if you see a thing in the in one book, you can be like, oh, and you can go back and look at another book to, to expound upon the, the meaning of it. And it's a show you do need to set up because of the temporal lock. You're going to well, get to te- a point and then you're going to move past and it. Technically, we can do that because it's Netflix. We could mm-hmm. go back. Yeah. yeah, but that's just not the way our brains work. Um, what do you guys think of the Addams Family movies? I'm curious. I love yeah, the Addams Family movie. I love the first two, at least. They're the only ones I've seen. I love Addams Family. I love Adam. Family values. I think there's only um, two. I don't think there's, there's just two. There's not. A third there's one. there's a third one there's that does not have yeah. the original. There's only two that count. No. Um, and I ask this because the the director producer of a lot of this is Barry Sonnenfeld, who directed the Adams Family movies. Uh, Joan Cusack was in Adams Family Values yes. as Debbie Jelinski, yes. one of the best yep. villains of all time. Excellent. And I I bring that up just because I think it's really interesting his take on it. It's kind of a that's a really interesting choice. And it really is an amazing marriage. Like, you feel a lot of the sensibilities of the Addams Family, the way the Addams Family movies lampoon uh, the the impotent and also kind of just phony nature of culture. It's very similar to kind of the gothic elements of this. And they're also, frankly, both gothic stories, the Addams Family and, you know, the story of the bottle layers. I mean, I agree, but I think that... I, I guess that the difference... I don't know. The show kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I feel like the show is... The show feels condescending to me. Like, it feels like it's talking Mm -hmm. down to me. And maybe what that actually is, is that I am watching the show as an adult, and I had the books when I was a child. So my relationship's going to be different with it, no matter what. And and some of it, I think, is is a flaw in the adaptation where it's too faithfully adapted. Mm -hmm. So, like, when you're reading a book and he goes on a digression about a certain word. Exactly. It's more bearable than just somebody saying in dialogue, oh, this word means this. With film, you have, like, the whole, like, visual medium to work with, like, a whole nother language. So a lot of it, sometimes they can find good ways to adapt the weird digressions, but not always. And that's kind of a problem. Yeah. And there's also times, like, there's times that it feels pandery, like, everybody that's in anything is in this. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are times I like that because I'm like, oh, Reese Darby, good for you. And there's times when I hate it because I'm like, okay, Will Arnett, we get it. You're a person. Yeah. But, and there's also times when those people aren't as well versed in this style and so they don't sell it as well, which is another reason I like Nathan Fillion. Oh, let's talk about the casting of Violet and Klaus, which is my weirdest point of contention, maybe more so than Neil Patrick Harris. I hate them. I hate them. I think they're awful. So I I texted all three of you the same thing when I discovered this. There's kind of an incest vibe to it. No, I there's like not. incest. I just gotta say, 
I'm pro incest. Oh my Dude, gosh. no, he's kidding. He's kidding. Everybody, he's kidding. Please say you're kidding. Okay. Uh, we just did an episode about sexual abuse. Uh, we are, that is a joke. Um, I don't know. Uh, I was fine with the kids. They're but kids. They, they cast two kids for Violet and Klaus who are, I thought Violet was 16, not 14. She's 14. She's definitely 14. Okay. Which they, is so creepy. They, they cast, but Violet in the books, these illustrations I think do a good point of giving, the children are, Violet is about two to three heads taller than Klaus. So there's a very stark difference where there's very tall Violet, Klaus, and Sonny, and they kind of create this kind of tear mm-hmm. in, in the visual image. They cast someone for Violet who's about the same age as Klaus and they're the same height and they have the same tenor and there's a lot of them looking across at each other with worried looks and I think it accidentally gives a weird vibe of like, oh, this is awkward and weird because in real life those actors, the actor for Klaus is actually older than Violet. I think that what they're going for is they're trying to kind of mimic like the charmingly stilted dialogue that's in the books where Mm -hmm. like everybody kind of like over explains everything but that doesn't translate to film. Like I think that the biggest problem with the TV show is that this is like a thing that was made for literature. So like trying to make a visual adaptation of it is perhaps misguided. Yeah. And I, I feel like maybe if you have two kids that are two ages apart and very, I think they should have aged up Violet and gotten a taller actor. (laughs) Yeah. Who who looked more like an older sister than like a twin your age that you maybe look to longingly often. Because Although I do like that the that I, I think one of the things is that the siblings like throughout the series, and I remember like thinking this was strange growing up, like is they always more or less got along with each other and treated uh-huh. each other with respect and as equals. Mm-hmm. And I think anyone that has siblings knows nope. that that's no. not what it's like. No. Okay. No. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I got to say though. That as a child, I was really close to my sister because we were we were moving around all the time. My sister and I, my kid sister and I, and um, yeah, we fought. And I was I was a hell to live with. You can ask any member of my parents or anyone I dated in high school. I was a hell of a person. But that my sister and I never gave up on talking to one another and, and being around one another. And all children's book, it's like like Goosebumps or any other kids book. It's like you suck sibling of mine but like my sister and I like we're never like that like we're you know and I love that about these books mutual trauma does kind of bond people but you also had and you just said you love incest so sister of Israel run run (laughs) (laughs) I was referring to the other sister oh my god oh no all of you just run (laughs) (laughs) all Um, right we, we gotta sew it up Tim uh yeah Gosh, this is a good book series. I would recommend children to read these books and maybe watch the Netflix show. But I think honestly, watch, watch the Adam- watch the show later. Watch yeah. the Adams Family movies first. Yeah, oh, I, yeah. I would rather see all of what is kind of being distilled, the Lisa Simpsonness of these characters uh-huh. that you see in the Netflix series. If you want to see a television version of that, you want Wednesday Adams and Adams Family Values. Oh, no question. And I really prefer, and I actually like Joan Cusack as Justice Strauss, but I prefer her Debbie Jelinski any day. Oh, jo- uh, I, I think that the best Joan Cusack performances in Adams Family it's Values. Debbie it's like, it's yeah. Debbie Jelinski. I think the best Joan Cusack is as the principal in School of Rock. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Okay, we got to sew it up, everybody. Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks for chatting with um, us. Tim said you had something you wanted to plug. Yeah, there's a couple things I want to plug. One is if you, A, like, or B, hate the way Elena and I talk about books and movies, then you should come read a, hear us read at, we 
uh, help run the Wanting to Die Poetry Club. Or come read at the Wanting to Die Poetry Club because we host an open mic the last Wednesday of every month at 6 p.m. at Diabolical Records. In Salt Lake City. And I would also want to plug that the Poetry Club would not be able to do what they do if it wasn't for the help of two really beautiful people. And those two beautiful people have a band, and that band is called Fists in the Wind. And they're playing uh, KRCL right now as we speak. They're playing a show. And so if you like good music, listen to Fists in the Wind. If you like good music, go back in time from tomorrow when this comes out and listen to the two Fists in the Wind on KRCL. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Are there albums on Bandcamp? Yes. Yes, they they have a Bandcamp, fistsinthewind.bandcamp.com. They're also playing Pride. They're going to be playing Mm -hmm. Pride um, in a few weeks. Nice. Salt Lake City Pride, everybody. Uh, do you guys want to give out your Twitter handles or anything? Oh, heck yeah. We're on Facebook and Instagram as the Wanting to Die Poetry Club. Twitter and coming soon? <laughs> you guys? No, Be- Twitter. Maybe. 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 I don't know. <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't hold your breath, but maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you guys again for being here. It's oh, been no, very thank- nice to have thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Definitely. And uh, we are gonna say the things now that we say uh you can find the jedrek us the the judgment day refreshment committee on the interwebs at jdrcpodcast.podbean.com you can find us on the twitters at jdrcpodcast and now on the instagrams at jdrcpodcast you can find us on facebook as the judgment day refreshment committee yep you gotta type the whole thing uh and then also If you are on iTunes or Stitcher, why not rate and review? It helps people find us. And besides, all the cool kids are doing it. Your mom won't find out. Just once won't hurt. I'll praise the algorithm. I'll praise the algorithm. Also, we have a Patreon page. There's a link to it on our Podbean website. And there's a secret, sneakret episode. And if you pay a dollar, you can listen to said sneakret episode. And maybe later there'll be some other dollar stuff. Like some, I don't know, some business. Anyway, go check out our Patreon if you got too much money and you want to give it to some goons. Uh, also, these are our sign-offs. Run, Israel sister. <laughs> Uh, uh, run away. And remember, we will not judge you, but we will bring the jello salad to your trial. <laughs>